Dime, why you do this to me? Please, Dimi. I'm afraid. Hello, freaky friends. This is the Horror Hound. Welcome to episode six of the Horrorverse. In this episode, which is a bonus episode, I will be talking about William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, which was released in 1973. William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, loosely based on a true story. During its time in the theater, it was regarded as the scariest movie of all time. The movie was so repulsive to viewers, theaters had to hand out sick bags. And there were reports of people fainting, including one moviegoer who sued Warner Brothers after they fainted, fell out of their chair, and broke their jaw while seeing the movie. With this disturbing focus on the demonic possession of a 12-year-old girl, horror movie The Exorcist has terrified audiences around the world ever since it hit the big screen in 1973. Now, one of my favorite possession slash exorcism movies of all time, I would have to say that William Peter Blatty definitely displayed to be a master of his craft. With the incredible acting, the intelligent actors, and terrifying moments, even to this day, it is a classic that still dominates Hollywood horror today amongst fans of the macabre. Almost 50 years old now, there is no reason the exorcist would not have the same effects on first-time viewers. And if you're Catholic, it's that much more terrifying. I had the prestige opportunity to visit the house in the infamous stairs while in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., and I remember just looking at the house itself, and the stairs gave me goosebumps. Being a fanboy of this awesome movie, I was giddy as a small child, but also there was this eerie and ominous feeling that overcame me while staring at the window where Regan's room would have been in the movie. Also looking down the stairs made me really nervous due to the fact that is where Father Karras rolled down and dying at the end. It's moments like that where you realize there are curiosities that need to be satisfied by your inner darkness. However, in this fake aid, for as controlling an invisible force as demonic possession can be in these intertwining tales, the Hollywood connections show that ambition can be just as mind-altering. The history behind the movie shows how the desire for success, acclaim, and fame are also powers that constrain. I'm a poet, didn't know it. <laughs> so... There's a creeping sense of desperation and the yearning to be rid of evil forces in a quiet Washington town that bleeds over into the pursuit of Hollywood stardom. The nature of both sides of the story lends an urgency to the story that unlocks it from the long gone decade. Getting back to the part about this movie loosely based on a true story or a true event, however you want to transpire this. So. The novel, also titled The Exorcist, written by William Peter Blatty, was first published in 1971. It was based on the 1949 Maryland case of a 13-year-old boy only known under the pseudonym of Roland Doe. The boy was suffering from an inexplicable ailment after the death of an aunt who introduced him to the Ouija board and started presenting extreme signs of demonic possession. The first attempt at the ritual was performed by a Roman Catholic priest. Edward Hughes at Georgetown University Hospital, a Jesuit institution. The exorcism was unsuccessful and stopped when the priest was physically harmed as the boy was said to have broken free from the restraints and slashed the priest using a mattress spring. Ooh, that had to hurt like hell, just saying. So, <laughs> Reverend William S. Batter in St. Louis was granted permission to perform another exorcism by the Catholic Church. The boy is said to have undergone around 30 exorcisms. 
many of which he succeeded in breaking free of his restraints and becoming violent. Roland had no recollection of his possession or exorcism when breaking free and went on to live a normal life. So, imagine in this picturesque Bel Noir neighborhood of St. Louis sits a beautiful colonial-style house on Roanoke Drive. Sure, it looks normal on the outside, with an all-brick exterior and white shutters framing the windows while huge trees and neatly manicured bushes dot the yard. Yet one of the most extraordinary horror stories turned urban legends in American history transformed this house into a landmark for the macabre and provided the true story of the exorcist. Uh, according to urban legend also, the story, the true story of the exorcist starts in late 1940s in suburban Washington, D.C. with a family named Hunkler. The 13-year-old boy believed to be named Rolando, or Ronald, or Rolando, whatever, among other names, was downhearted over the loss of his beloved Aunt Harriet, a spiritualist who taught him many things, including how to use a Ouija board. Naughty Aunt Harriet, just saying. You've been a very bad pussum. So, in early January 1949, shortly after Harriet's death, Ronald began to experience bizarre events. He heard scratching sounds coming from the floors and the walls of his room. Water dripped mysteriously from her pipes and walls. The most troubling thing was his mattress would suddenly move. Troubled, Ronald's family sought after the help of every expert they knew. The Hunklers consulted doctors, psychiatrists, and their local Lutheran minister. But they were no help at all. The minister suggested that the family seek the assistance of the Jesuits. Father E. Albert Hughes and the local Catholic priest asked his superior's permission to perform an exorcism on the boy in late February 1949. Nevertheless, Hughes stopped the rite when Ronald broke a piece of spring from the mattress and cut his shoulders with it, pretty much. A few days later, scratches appeared on the boy. One of the scratches formed the word Lewis which indicated to Ronald's mother that the family needed to go to St. Louis where the Hunklers had relatives in order to find a way to save their son. A cousin of the family was attending St. Louis University at the time of Ronald's struggles. She put the Hunklers in touch with Father Walter H. Halloran and Reverend William Bowdern. After checking with the university's president, these two Jesuits agreed to perform an exorcism on young Ronald with the help of several assistants. The men gathered at the residence on Royal Drive in early March of 1949. There, the exorcist observed scratching on the boy's body and the mattress moving sadistically. These were the same types of things that happened in Maryland when the first exorcism failed. Amid these inexplicable activities, Bowder and Halloran, according to the reports, detected a pattern in Ronald's behavior. He was calm and normal during the day, but at night, after settling in for bed, he would exhibit strange behavior, including screaming and wild outbursts. Clearly details that identify that this as the true story of the exorcist. Ronald would also enter a trance-like state and start making sounds in a grating voice. The priest supposedly also saw mysterious flying objects in the boy's presence and noted that he would react violently when he saw many sacred objects presented by the attending Jesuit. At one point during this weeks-long ordeal, Bowden reportedly saw the letter X appear in scratches on Ronald's chest, which the priest believed 
indicated the number 10. In another incident, a pitchfork-shaped pattern of red lines moved from the boy's thigh and staked down towards his ankle. These types of things happened every night for more than a month, and everyone witnessing the events believed that Roland was possessed by 10 demons. Not by one, not by two, but 10. So the two priests never gave up as they continued the exorcism night after night. On the evening of March 20th, the exorcist reached an unnatural new level. Roland, or Ronald, urinated all over his bed and began shouting and cursing at the priest. Now, Ronald's parents had had enough. They took him to the Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis for more serious treatment. Finally, on April 18th, a miracle transpired in Roland's room at the Alexian Brothers Hospital. It was the Monday after Easter, and Ronald awoke with seizures. He yelled at the priest, saying that Satan would always be with him. The priest laid holy relics, crucifixes, medals, and rosaries on the boy. At 10.45 p.m. that evening, the attending priest called on St. Michael to banish Satan from Ronald's body. They shouted at Satan, saying that St. Michael would battle him for Ronald's soul. Seven minutes later, Ronald came out of his trance and simply said, He's gone! He's gone! The boy recounted how he had a vision that St. Michael defeated Satan on great battlefield. The power of Christ compels you! The, the power, power of Christ compels you! There were no more documented instances of strange occurrences and behavior after that. And Ronald went on to live a completely normal life from that moment forward, despite providing the true story of the exorcist. No one would have ever known about the exorcism of Roland Doe, nor would it have become the true story of the exorcist, if not for an article in the Washington Post, which reported in late 1949, although with few details, that priests had indeed performed an exorcism. The case wouldn't make headlines again for more than two decades. In 1971, an author by the name of William Peter Blatty penned the best-selling novel, The Exorcist, based on an unofficial diaries kept by Halloran and Bowdern. The book stayed on the, on the bestseller list for 54 weeks, and it spawned a hit movie in 1973. The movie took many with its with source material, turning the teenager into a toy girl named Regan and not a boy named Ronald. The movie's story also takes place completely in Washington, D.C. and the Georgetown area, which is somewhat true to life since Ronald was hospitalized for a week in Georgetown in late February 1949. Granting the scratches, shouting, spitting, red lines in the skin, and cursing in the movie mimicked what Ronald had experienced. The boy's head never turned 360 degrees like an owl, or like Regan's did in the film. But, similarly, Ronald never vomited green matter during his many outbursts, nor did he use bloody crucifixes. So, succeeding the exorcism of Roland Doe, his family moved back to the East Coast. Sources say that Ronald found a wife and started a family. He named his first son Michael after the saint believed to have saved his soul. If Roland is still alive today, he would be in his early 80s. Father Bowder, on the other hand, died in 1983 after serving the Catholic Church for decades. Father Holleran lived until 2005, when he died of cancer. He was the last surviving member of the main team that had performed the exorcism of Roland Doe. The room in the Alexian Brothers Hospital was boarded up and sealed following the exorcism. The entire facility was torn down in 1978. The house where the family lived in Maryland is now an empty lot after it was abandoned in the 1960s. Extras believe the real neighbor Roland Doe to be Ronald Hunkler, 
although only one person reportedly knows for sure. In 1993, author Thomas B. Allen wrote a nonfiction book entitled Possessed, The True Story of an Exorcism. In writing the book, which relies heavily on Halloran's detailed accounts, Allen claims to have uncovered the true identity and story of Roland Doe, but has said that he will never reveal the person's true name. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. So, as for the cozy house on Rona Drive, it sold to new owners in 2005 for $165,000. Perhaps the buyers embraced the property's legendary history and reputation that claims that Satan may have once lived in the upstairs bedroom. After this look at Roland Doe and the true story of the exorcist and read upon the exorcism and Lisa Michael, the real life Emily Rose, then there's other 16 Alcana horror film locations, including one from the exorcist that you can visit today. What is that special? <laughs> All right. Hey, mother's in here with his cash. Would you like to leave a message? I see that she gets it. Well, yes, I do have a message for his mother and the rest of the crowd listening to this podcast. So, here are some eerie facts behind the film of William Peter Blatter's 1973. While the film was a smash hit amongst horror fans everywhere, there are some interesting facts in which the fan base may or may not have knowledge of. The book on which it based was initially a failure when published. The author hit some luck when he was invited as a last-minute guest on the late-night show, The Dick Cabet Show. Subsequently, the book hit the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, the demon's name in the film is Pazazu, which is never explicitly mentioned in the film at all. At the beginning of the film, when Father Marin stands in front of a statue in an archaeological site in Iraq, he is actually in the ancient Nineveh. The statue is of that of Pazazu. He is an ancient Assyrian and Babylonian demon king of the demon winds and son of Hanbi, the god of evil. He had the power to control winds that could cause destruction and famine. Though Pazazu was an evil force and was to ascend the underworld throne, he actually protected pregnant women by keeping the demon goddess Lamashu at bay, who was said to harm pregnant women and babies. Well, that explains a lot, you know, in you know the, the prequel movies or Exorcist the Beginning. I get it now. And the, the McNeil house caught on fire during the shoot, except Regan's room. A very mysterious fire left the whole set damaged, but Regan's room was completely unharmed. Now, that is kind of creepy. A uh, real-life suspected serial killer makes an appearance in the film, Paul Bateson. A real-life x-ray technician played the role of the radiologist assistant in the scene where Regan is having a carteroid angiography. He was arrested for homicide in 1979 after meeting film critic Addison Barrel, having sex with him, and proceeding to bash his skull with a skillet. Bateson boasted about killing other men while awaiting trial, claiming that he did it for fun and dumped their bodies in the Hudson River. Wow, another bad guy just sitting around, huh? Authorities suspected him being a serial killer that had been targeting gay men in the years of 1977 and 1978 and wrapping their chopped up remains in plastic bags. These were known as the bag murders. Though they had a, con though they had a confession, they couldn't link any evidence to his claim. Sentenced to 20 years for the murder of Addison Barrow, Bates became a free man in 2004. Uh, the screams you hear when Regan's mother is thrown to the floor after the possessed girl slaps her are actually genuine. She permanently injured her spine during the shooting of the scene because she was pulled too hard with the cable. Linda Blair also injured her back while filming when a piece of ringing broke 
while shooting one of the infamous possession scenes. During the first day of filming, Max von Snydo, uh, Father Marin, actually, actually forgot his lines because he found Linda Blair's crude dialogue so unsettling. Linda Blair received an insane amount of death threats. The majority of these were from religious zealots, many who believed her to be Satan's voice and helper. These threats got to be so horrendous that Warner Brothers had to hire bodyguards to be with her 24 hours a day, seven days a week for nearly six months. The threats actually didn't stop after the movie was released or when the buzz died down. They continued on for years. People actually believed the film was cursed. The popular belief was that even playing the film could invite demon possession. Televangelist Billy Graham said, There is a power of evil in the film and the fabric of the film itself. If that's the case, then I guess my house is evil because I've watched the movie so many damn times. It's ridiculous. I can probably tell you the whole dialogue if I wanted to. Okay, maybe not. But, you know, hey, it's worth a shot, right? So, the film was banned in the UK. The movie was released with an X rating in the UK in 1974. It was later banned by a few local authorities. And in 1988, the sale of the film was banned under the Video Recordings Act. It wasn't until 1999 that the film was legally released again in the UK. The sound of the demon leaving Regan's body is actually recordings of pigs being led to a slaughter. Did yeah, I can see where they get a little creepy. The scenes where Father Karras visited his mother in Bellevue actually contained real mental patients and some were recorded using hidden cameras. Okay, did they sign a waiver at least? I mean, shit, dude. I mean, come on now. You know, they have that, you know, they have a waiver or some kind of consent they have to sign, but I guess since they're mental patients, they have no idea what's going on, so therefore I guess there's nothing to sign. Sort of like secret swirl stuff going on. There was quite a number of deaths around in the movie. Actor Jack McGrowan died from the flu shortly after shooting the ended. Actress Visaliki Malerios also died during post-production due to natural causes. Well, there's nothing to do about that. Both of their characters died in the film. Linda Blair's grandfather and that Max von Sydow's brother both died during the shooting. The son of Mercedes McCambridge murdered his wife and two daughters before taking his own life in 1987. Wow. Okay, so. Closing thoughts of this movie, of this outstanding movie. There are a few movies I consider actually terrifying. Sure, there's grisly horror and I indulge in jumps every so often. But when it comes to genuine scares, it's hard to think of anything that actually gets under my skin and makes it crawl like The Exorcist. Maybe it's something to do with the fact that I am Catholic or the mastery of William Freakin. But this classic from 1973 is a movie that has left a big imprint on me. It was the first horror movie I saw with amazing character development and a true art for the people involved. It was a movie about the clashes like between progressive and family values, between science and religion, and between atheism and faith. But one thing the ending of The Exorcism makes seamlessly clear is where the film owns politics and where it stands. At the end, we see that Regan now, back to normal, prepares to leave for Los Angeles with her mother. She also has no recollection of her possession, but she is still moved by the sight of Dyer's clerical collar and kisses his cheek. As the car leaves, her mother tells the driver to stop, and she gives Dyer a medallion that belonged to Karis. After they dry off, Dyer pauses at the top of the stone steps before turning and walking away. So, after such a batshit movie, this was actually a pretty quick, pretty quiet ending. 
Why is that, you ask? I, I know, right? It's inquiring minds want to know. Theoretically, the answer lies within the moral of the film. As we look back on the movie, it can be seen as a denunciation of female sexuality, the single-parent home, science versus religion, and the importance of a father in your life. While some of these notions might feel out of date, they were prevalent in the 1970s, pushing back on the free love generation and moral shakeup of the 1960s. At the end of the movie, we see Regan rejecting becoming a woman. Instead, she becomes a meek child who chooses religion. She also gets a father figure in God and the priest. And our priest made the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus did to save her soul. It's funny that this was the intent because when the film was released, it faced a backlash from parent groups, church sex, and much of the public, even as it was embraced by Hollywood and nominated for multiple Academy Awards. I think the central questions of this movie are what makes it able to withstand the test of time. Even though the morals might be outdated or twisted one way, the entertainment value is done so well. We have the struggle at the forefront of the conversation and it forms every scene we see. So, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that has made The Exorcist such a huge cultural phenomenon? The standing of this blockbuster film originates at least in part from the fact that it seeks to be more than mere horror by addressing such serious issues as religious faith and the existence of evil in the modern world. The Exorcist remains significant in that it drew the horror genre into mainstream commercial cinema and found a major audience which were merely horror fans. As is clear by now, I prefer Blatty's 1971 version of the novel and Freakin's 1973 version of the film. Nonetheless, perhaps, it is the wisest, despite my preferences, and those of the artists, not to assert on anyone's version or correct or definitive. Reasonably, we might see the various interpretations of Exodus as adaptations or competing interpretations. Pieces in an ongoing and undecided conversation about the meanings and implications of the story. But then again, is this enough to elucidate the horror, the captivation, and the lasting cultural impact of the exorcist? For those of us who wish to open ourselves to the various contradictory and subversive pleasures of the Gothic, I succumb that he left us with a great deal more. On the next episode of the Horrorverse, join me as I talk about the movie The Conjuring and how it is actually rooted in a horrifying true experience of Ed and Lorraine Warren. The true story of The Conjuring begins with the first film which focuses on the Perrin family that moved into a 14-room farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island, where Carolyn, Roger, and their five daughters began to notice strange things happening almost immediately after they moved in. From paranormal activity to possessions, the true story behind The Conjuring is even more terrifying than the movie.